0: Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting recent work in natural language
1: processing. This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. All right, our guest today is Jacob Adrias. Um, uh, he will be talking to us about his paper titled Translating Neuralese um, and uh, it's a paper co-authored uh, by him, Anka Dragan, and Dan Klein. Jacob is a superstar PhD student at UC Berkeley. He's generally interested in natural language processing problems as a window into reasoning, planning, and perception. The paper we're discussing today focuses on using language as a prop for understanding model behavior. In particular, it tries to interpret neural-based or neuralese messages used to coordinate among decentralized agents by translating them into natural language. So what's the motivation for this line of work?
2: So there's been a bunch of interest, I mean, really going all the way back to like the early 90s, but again in the last couple of years on um, learning sort of multi-agent strategies uh, in an end-to-end way, right? So if I have some kind of system like a bunch of Roombas that are all trying to clean a room together or maybe a bunch of self-driving cars or something and they all have to coordinate somehow, um, we might like to design – Or rather, we might like to learn the communication protocol that they use uh, just from a task signal rather than trying to design it by hand. Um, And so there have been a bunch of different ways proposed for doing this. And if you want, we can talk about some of the details about how that works. But basically, the modern version of this thing, these just look like big RNNs. Uh, You have a bunch of little agents implemented as little neural nets. Uh, And they're sending messages to each other over some kind of vector valued communication channel. And so these agents are all talking to each other in this kind of language of uh, RNN hidden state vectors Um, and it's natural after learning one of these policies, which, you know, empirically work really well, uh, to want to actually understand what's going on and say like, what is the information that's being passed around between these things? Uh, when do they say certain things? Why do they say certain things? And what's the high level, uh, communication strategy that's actually being learned? Um, and so that's the problem that we're trying to solve here is given, uh, access to one of these kind of pre-trained multi-agent systems. that uses communication can we take that communication and turn it into something that people can understand
0: do you think it's even really practical to be learning the communication so like if I'm designing some multi-agent system uh, under what circumstances like in, in a practical situation would I really want to learn the communication policy instead of just defining it a priori yeah. So
2: the self-driving car example is actually probably a terrible example because anything that's a safety critical <laughs> application, you probably want to know ahead of time um, right. what's actually going on here. But no, I mean, I think there are, you know, the kinds of examples that people have looked at for these things are um, sort of strategic games where you might imagine, you know, if there's some sort of auction for advertisements or something where you uh, some kind of communication phase ahead of time where people report their values is useful, that it might actually be possible to automatically learn more, more sophisticated strategies than people are capable of writing down by hand. And even kind of, you know, in non-safety critical robotics applications or like gameplay or designing, you know, yeah, agents for video game AIs or whatever. Um, these kinds of things might actually be, uh, quite effective.
1: Okay. So the paper focuses on deep communicating policies or DCPs. Could you give an example of a DCP for those folks who are not familiar?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, the simplest version of one of these kinds of policies that we're talking about uh, that you can imagine, uh, is something that plays a referring expression game. And so this is something that mostly gets used for analysis and gets studied a lot in kind of like, uh, pragmatics and in the CogSci community, but where basically I have two players, I have a speaking player and a listening player, uh, they're both going to see, say two pictures. Um, and the speaking player is told that it has to refer to one of the two pictures And it's going to send some kind of message to the listening player that's going to allow the listening player to identify the image that the speaking player was trying to talk about. And so, you know, when people play this game, the speaking player is literally generating some kind of natural language description of the image that they're trying to refer to. Uh, But you can also set up kind of uh, end-to-end neural models that, you know, the speaker uh, slurps up some representation of both of the images, produces just some, some kind of hidden state vector. Uh, passes that hidden state vector off to the other half of the model and the other half of the model looks at the two images and the state vector that it's received and tries to reconstruct what was going on there. And, you know, so in this kind of like one step setting, you can think of autoencoders generically as being these kinds of games. Uh, And if you unroll these over multiple steps, then you get the kinds of things that people started to look at more recently in the literature where you can actually have, uh, you know, sort of agents interacting in real time with each other.
1: Great. So a key contribution of this work is uh, the framework that you came up with uh, to compare the messages used in a policy that uses deep learning to messages used in a human policy. Could you elaborate on this and walk us through the uh, two kinds of agents used in this formulation?
2: Yeah, so the... Sort of what makes this an interesting, you know, this is basically a machine translation problem in the sense that I have messages in this neuralese language that my learned model is speaking, uh, and I want to be able to understand what's going on by translating those messages into English. Uh, The problem is that unlike in a normal machine translation problem, we don't have access to any kind of parallel training data, right? So I have examples of my neural nets talking to my neural nets, and I have examples of people talking to people, but I never get to see paired data. And so the kind of hard problem that we have here um, is is to figure out how to build a translation system uh, in that setting. Uh, And basically what makes this possible is the fact that even though we don't have real sort of parallel machine translation data, uh, we do know in some sense how these messages ground out in the world, right? That we get to observe not just sort of vectors detached from any kind of context, but actually, you know, sort of the message that my learned agent sent uh, when it was in a particular state of the world and the person that it was trying to communicate to or the the model that it was trying to communicate to was also in a particular state of the world. And so we can get examples of uh, sort of learned agents talking to learned agents uh, and that grounding and then humans talking to humans. Uh, you know, if we get them to play the same kinds of games uh, and the grounding that the humans observe when they're generating those messages and it's through that uh, through that grounding in sort of actual states of the world that we're actually, that, that we're able to build uh, something that looks like a translation system. Uh, and I can talk about how that is done technically.
0: Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I, I guess I've seen a lot of work, uh, at least a few, a few papers recently, on um, if I have two big piles of text in two different languages, uh, but no parallel text, how do I learn a translation dictionary between them? this is kind of a similar problem to uh, what you're looking at in this paper, but I guess the, the difference is you have this external notion of some kind of grounding in order to do this mapping. Um, can you uh, tell us exactly how you view the, the grounding that lets you bridge these, these two?
2: Yes. Things? So actually, before I do that, to talk about kind of, you know, when in uh sort of normal ML- NLP, normal machine translation settings, there's this kind of view of machine translation as decipherment where I sort of know what my source text looks like and I know what my parallel text looks like, but I don't necessarily have a direct model and I still want to learn a mapping between them. And there you can do it, uh, basically by assuming that, uh, the language models look the same, that there's some sort of set of things that are being referred to on the source side and the target side, um, uh, and, you know, that if I could just kind of find the correspondence between some f- fixed source language model and some fixed target language model, um, th- th- then, then that would let me solve the problem. So when people mine for kind of comparable corpora for doing these things in machine translation land or whatever, uh, that's basically what's going on. Um, and I guess the other way in which the problem that we have here is hard is that we also uh, don't have comparable corpora. We can't assume that the strategy that our humans are using and our robots are using are actually the same. Uh, And so even when they're in a particular state of the world, I can't necessarily assume uh, that my learn model is like trying to talk about the same thing that uh, my human agent is trying to talk about. Uh, And, and that's what makes this difficult because it means that I can't just kind of naively say, okay, well here's an agent message Uh, look at the messages that humans were generating in the same state and try to directly learn a mapping between them, even kind of conditioned on the state, uh, uh, precisely because, you know, it might be the case that, uh, playing some kind of, well, yeah, one of these like image referring expression games, uh, that the human saying things like it's a red bird or it's a yellow bird. And the learned agent is saying something like, you know, the third pixel from the top left has a saturation that's 126, uh. And, and so you do need some way of uh, of teasing that apart. And so in particular, what we do is we take this idea that, again, has been like super well studied in the sort of cog computational models of pragmatics community, um, which is that if I really care about getting some representation of the meaning of a message, uh, a good way of capturing it, that is to look at the belief distribution that it induces uh, in the person who listens to the message. And so the sort of actual translation criterion that we build here is I start with uh, the message that the speaker sent. And rather than even really trying to recover exactly what the speaker's state was, what we try to do is we build a model that takes us from that message onto the belief that a sort of optimal listener forms about the the state that the speaker might be in upon hearing that message. And we can do that for our agents. We can do that for uh, our humans when we have examples of humans as well. Um, and now we have a kind of common space of representations uh, in which to do translation. Uh, and this common space of representations is basically the space of distributions uh, that the listener thinks that we might be in. Uh, and then we don't even necessarily need to assume um, uh, you know, that, our, that our human agents and our automated agents are, are choosing to talk about the same things.
1: So here, are we talking about distributions over uh, observations or over uh, actions that are possible at this uh, state? Uh,
2: over ob- observations, essentially. I mean, it, you know, you can sort of do different versions of this depending on whether your environment as a whole is partially observed or totally observed uh you know the only reason that the agents should need to communicate at all is if there's some information that's private to the speaker that the listener doesn't have access to Uh, whether those two things together sort of tell you everything that you need to know about the environment or whether there might be also uh further information that neither person knows about uh doesn't really matter in this framework uh but yeah, yeah, basically you can think about it as uh, the speaker is going to see some kind of feature vector uh, and we want to compute the distribution over those feature vectors.
0: Yeah, can you uh, give an example of this to make it a little more concrete?
2: Yeah, so I mean, I think again in the... Uh, the like simple one-step referring expression game uh, is is an easy way to think about this. So what's the information that both people observe? They both observe that there are these two images. And then there's some extra bit of information that's visible to the speaker but not the listener, which is the identity of the image that we're actually trying to refer to. And so in that case, the kind of distribution that you want to form is just uh, kind of the distribution over how that bit has been assigned. So given that the speaker said it's the red bird, uh, how much do I think it's the picture on the left and how much do I think it's the picture on the right?
0: Good. Uh, and I, I think in your paper you mentioned two different kinds of groundings, and this is just one of them, right?
2: This is one of them, yeah. And then the more complicated one that we look at in the paper, uh, we have this uh, sort of challenging driving game where there are two cars that are both trying to get through an intersection, but they can't actually see each other, and so they have to do this kind of uh, communication to coordinate uh, about how to crash or how to, sorry, how to get through the intersection without crashing into each other. Uh, and so there the kinds of belief distributions that you're trying to form look more complicated because what the listener is trying to reconstruct is not just, uh, you know, sort of is the picture on the left or the picture on the right, but over all the positions that the car might be, the that the other car might be in and all the other orientations that the other car might be in and all of the sort of goals that it might have, the places that it's trying to reach uh, as it crosses this intersection, uh, that's essentially the space of distributions that uh, that we're trying to learn in.
0: Okay. Is, is there any other way to look at what beliefs get induced by these messages? So this is like...
2: Yeah. So, I mean, you know, one thing that you can do is to basically, like, some of these outer max over them or whatever in the course of... Um, uh, sort of generating natural language translations of these things. But if you actually want to see sort of visually what, what beliefs are getting induced, um, you can – right, we have a model. The way we compute these representations is we have a model uh, that picks up um, an utterance in English or in Neuralese or whatever and that picks up a state of the world. Uh, and tells us the probability of that state of the world given the utterance. So we can just sample a bunch of states of the world and then only keep around the ones that are assigned high probability by uh, a particular utterance or a particular neural message. And then that kind of collection of states that you've mined in that way gives you some way of kind of visually inspecting um, the kinds of belief diff- distributions that you're forming. Um, and so, you know, again, in the referring expression setting, what you kind of want to happen there is that uh, – that puts most of its mass on the right image and not on the wrong image. And in these kinds of driving games that you wind up with, uh, coherent clusters of, uh, uh of, of states.
0: Okay. So I guess then what you're saying is we know that, a translation of a neural message into English or some other language is good. If it induces, uh, it, if both messages induce the same kinds of, uh, state representations, state belief beliefs about state in in the listener of each of these respective languages right
2: that's uh, exactly right
0: and uh, in your paper you also presented a different way of defining a good translation uh based on what the speakers act what actions the speaker might take is that right like you had you had the speaker view and a listener view
1: like a semantic view i think was the one that you're adopting in the paper and there's the pragmatic um View of uh, what makes for a good translation, uh, right? You want to tell you want to tell us about the second one.
2: Yeah, so I mean, basically, well, yeah, kind of like you just said. You know, if we're trying to generate translations that are grounded out in some kind of task uh, with some kind of associated reward function, uh, you can either say. Well, in fact, you know, in some ways, the most natural thing to say is that what we actually care about optimizing with this translation criterion is the reward that our two agents are obtaining together on this task. Um, and so, there's a kind of yeah, like behavior-oriented view of translation that says, like, I don't actually care about what meanings are at all. Uh, whatever it is that the robot just said, if I have a robot and a human working together. The translation that I generate for the human should just be the thing that makes the human most likely um, to do the thing that will maximize the reward, whether or not they actually uh, form a correct belief or believe the right thing uh, about the robot. Um, and so, we have a little example in the paper uh, that basically shows that there are uh, circumstances where you can do, where you can do that, where the thing that you have to tell the human uh, to maximize their reward, even like given a sort of what the robot thinks is a truthful message. Uh, your translation winds up totally lying about the meaning of the message that you're trying to communicate. And so, you know, if we were really doing these things in, uh, in task oriented settings, um, uh, you might still maybe want to go doing things that way, but from the perspective of doing interpretable AI and really kind of understanding, like what's the information content of these messages and what's the strategy that, uh, um, that the agent is employing, uh, we decided to focus more on uh, these kind of explicitly belief-oriented uh, ways of doing translation.
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: Uh, right, so uh, are the representations, uh, are the messages used uh, in the neuralese uh, uh, policy, uh, are they assumed to be continuous, uh, or are we assuming that there is some discrete uh, discrete set of symbols?
2: Uh, yeah, so here the, all the, the message space is continuous, uh, right? And this is, you, you know, we're kind of – there's two lines of work on this learning communication stuff. Uh, there are a couple papers that just say let's treat these things as kind of structurally big RNNs with weird connectivity patterns and just learn the communication via backprop. There's a whole other line of research that focuses on uh, learning discrete communication protocols these mostly have kind of more of a, again, of a kind of cog sci or evolution of language flavor. They're really fiddly to get to train and you have to work very hard to get, um, you know, any kind of sensible structure in even very, very simple languages at all uh, with a lot of these kinds of discrete codes, you know, and I guess I'll just say again, our, our motivation with this really is about understanding, uh, the kinds of systems that are used or are likely to get used uh, in the real world and to the extent that learning these continuous message spaces is a much easier thing, um, these seem like the more interesting kinds of systems to study uh, from that point of view.
0: Yeah, I'm looking at the uh, the equations in your paper in Section 5 where you talk about how, how you actually um, decide what is a good translation, like how, we've been talking about the intuition for what, what makes a translation good uh you have mm-hmm. s- you have some math that formalizes this and i'm i'm wondering if it makes sense to try to explain that in podcast form i don't know if you want Yeah to really i mean it's
2: it's really it's like uh the math is actually not that complicated right it's basically you know once you have the core intuition that what makes a good translation is that it induces the same uh belief in your listener as whatever message that you started out with uh You know, there's some work you have to do just getting to kind of what's the right notion of uh, the distance between beliefs that you might induce in a listener when your beliefs are represented as probability distributions, Um, uh, and and then how do you actually compute that thing efficiently? And I don't think you know we have a particular solution to that in the paper, but I don't think the details uh, are particularly important or even necessarily like. The best way of doing it, but it was you know kind of the first thing that you write down once you have this this sort of core intuition about how to go about doing translation. Um, other sort of mathy things in the paper. I mean, one of the cool things is that even though you know we talked about the difference between doing translation in a way that kind of uh, respects the truthfulness of beliefs and translation in a way that optimizes performance in a downstream listener uh, on the actual task reward function. Um, And even when we take the sort of let's get the beliefs as good as possible perspective, rather than the let's make the reward function as high as possible perspective. Um, it's possible. there are like very, very easy proofs that you can do to show, uh, that you're not going to do too bad, uh, on the downstream reward function, even when you're not optimizing it for optimizing for it explicitly, as long as you make kind of reasonable assumptions about, uh, how smart your, your listener is.
0: Yeah, that's cool. So can you tell us how well this actually worked?
2: Yeah, so, uh, I mean, we've talked about some of these tasks a little bit already, but we're looking at three different games um, in this paper. Uh, two of the games are these kinds of, like, single-step referring expression games. Uh, one is uh, the kind of simplest possible version of this, where the things that the speaker might be trying to refer to the things that the listener is trying to resolve are just... Colors. So basically, they observe, you know, some like RGB or HSV triple or whatever, and that's the whole space in which the communication game takes place. Um, we move from there to uh, a real referring expression game with uh, photographs of birds, uh, and then finally, the last thing that we're looking at here again was this uh, two-player, two-player driving game where these cars are trying to get through an intersection without crashing into each other.
1: So the goal, so the goal of of the of this work is not to improve the performance of the uh, or the improve the coordination. It's rather to uh, measure um, how well can we do uh, by interpreting these uh, messages. So what metrics? Exactly. What metrics do you use in order to to evaluate this?
2: Um, so the way we think about evaluating these kinds of problems is one. You know, we have this. Um, uh, criterion of can we are we are we inducing the correct belief about the state that the listener or that the speaker was in Uh, and so that's something that we can actually evaluate directly in that we can sort of take a, a message that the speaker sent we can strip away the context and then we can show our model a bunch of states that the speaker might have actually been in and see if it can correctly guess um uh you know where the message actually came from and if you are correctly representing the semantics of these messages um you should be able to do that reasonably well and the cool thing is once you do that just for this kind of representation function that you have um you know sort of can i get from an early's message back to states uh i can now evaluate a translation model by saying okay i'm going to take this Neuralese message i'm going to translate it and then i'm going to see if i can get from that translated message again back to the state in which Uh, the Neuralese speaker who didn't know that this was going to get translated into English, uh, the state that that, that model was in. Uh, and so one of the evaluations that we do is just how well can you, uh, can you reconstruct these things? Uh, and the answer is actually like pretty well, uh, for all of the different tasks that we were looking at here. Um, and, uh, in particular, you do a lot better, uh, maybe unsurprisingly in this setting, um, by explicitly doing this kind of uh, belief-oriented view of translation rather than learning a direct mapping from uh, neuraly's messages to natural language messages that happen to have been uttered in the same state. Uh, the other evaluation that we look at is, uh, is this downstream task performance thing. So even though it's not something that we're optimizing for uh, explicitly, you, you know, we have some theoretical evidence that we should be able to actually do well uh, with respect to the reward function um, on the downstream task. And so the way we do this is we, you know, we've trained our robots to only play the game with other robots. We've trained our humans to only play the game with other humans. Uh, we then take a robot and we hook up a translation layer in the middle and we let the robot talk to a human by way of this translation layer. And we see how well playing this game together, uh, via the translation layer, they actually do. And then you can do it in the opposite direction also for these kinds of asymmetric games where you know, maybe you have a human speaking and a robot listening. Um, and they are, you again do quite well on the referring expression games. Uh, uh, there are conditions under which you can actually do better in that setting than humans do speaking to other humans because the robots manage to find a better um, strategy than the humans come up with on their own. And then that strategy survives translation. Uh, The story is a little bit more mixed in the driving game where you do substantially worse than, you know, either humans playing with humans do or robots playing with robots, but still much better with this kind of belief oriented uh, way of doing translation uh, than with something more, more direct and more like a, a classical machine translation model.
0: That's interesting. Looks looks like, uh, You can actually translate pretty well when you have this given grounding. I guess it makes me think a lot of other kinds of people are thinking a lot these days about interpreting neural models because they're really quite opaque a lot of the time. Yeah. Uh, Do you have any thoughts on how uh, you could push this forward to actually interpret other kinds of neural models where you don't have some strong notion of grounding that you're leveraging here?
2: Yeah. I mean, so for any, uh, for any neural model, right. There's some notion of grounding, which is just the, you know, you have your, your input data, uh, which is some representation of some kind of world state and your output data. Right. And, you know, once you have the kind of Like referring expression game view of these things. There's a, it's like maybe a little weird, but you can take this very expansive view of what it means to play one of these kinds of referring expression games and say, I can take any neural net that I have and chop it in half in an arbitrary place and think of the value that gets computed in that last layer on a given input as the message that the first half of the neural network, which is some kind of speaker sends to the second half of the neural network, which is some kind of listener. And you can actually use these same kinds of techniques um, to come up with some sort of representation of what's actually going on there. And, you know, all that's really saying again, is that like, I have some kind of neural representation that's computed. And what, you know, one way of, one way of asking, how do I interpret what this network is doing, is to say, by the time I get to the nth layer in this network, what information about the input has been, has the network decided is irrelevant and has discarded, and what like extra information has it imputed about the input that might not be easy to compute from sort of raw surface features uh, in a straightforward way. And so you can play the same game, right, of saying, okay, well, here's some... Uh, you know, neural net, hidden vector, give me the distribution over training data uh, that might have given me something that looks close to uh, this particular vector I've come up with. And then if you care about getting out natural language explanations rather than just visualizing sort of collections of training examples, you can do the same thing that we're doing here and saying, okay, now what sentence do I have to produce uh, to give me the same distribution over training examples?
0: Right. When when you mentioned cutting the network in half, you uh and treating that as a, as a message, I guess if you really want to use the same method that you used here, you'd have to also get humans to do a, a to, to write language corresponding to as a message in a similar spot in the network, right? So you can actually do the translation that you didn't. Display.
2: Right. But the cool thing is that for a surprisingly large number of tasks that we care about, that kind of natural language data is either easy to collect or already exists. So if you think about, uh, you know, doing image recognition, for example, Uh, you know, we have these huge image captioning data sets, which are all about uh, pairing uh, photographs with natural language strings. uh, And that's exactly the kind of data that you potentially need to learn one of these sorts of models.
0: Interesting.
1: Well, thank you. This was a very interesting paper, uh, very different than uh, most uh, papers we read in, in NLP conferences. Uh, I wonder if you'd like to give us uh, a, a very like uh, brief uh, description of, of the following the next paper that you published on on the same uh, direction of uh, of interpreting uh, deep uh, deep representations in MLP um, the paper titled analogs of linguistic structure in deep representations.
2: Yeah, so this is actually very closely related to the thing that we were just talking about here. Uh, of can we sort of apply these techniques to more general uh, machine tra- machine learning models? Um, and so what we did in the NLP, or in the EMNLP paper is uh, take a kind of vanilla conditional sequence autoencoding task that doesn't explicitly have any kind of communicative component. You just have some kind of labeled input. You have an RNN that slurps up your labeled input and then tries to reconstruct it again. Uh, And what we're doing here is we're using basically the same technique uh, that we were using in this paper to try to understand uh, what the hidden representation that, you know, lives between the encoder part of this model and the decoder part of this model, what that representation looks like. Um, And what's cool is that for the particular task that we're doing here, we again have these kinds of natural language annotations, but they're like, the data is, you know, without going into too much detail, is all about compositionality. And we have, you know, sort of uh, people using negation and conjunction and disjunction. And we have ground truth kind of logical annotations for all of the natural language utterances in this data set. And so this means that, uh, you know, in this paper, we're really building something that more looks more like a phrase dictionary uh, than a general purpose translation model. Where, you know, at the end of the day, in my driving game or my referring expression game, all I'm doing is saying, like, here's a whole message that I saw a human send before that seems to give me the right belief distribution. Um, In this new paper, we can actually uh, look more explicitly at the, the structure of these message spaces and say that, you know, not only can I translate, you know, some particular vector into some particular natural language string, but I can find the hidden substructure. I can say the way this vector does this is there's this like negation operation on the outside and then you know these two primitive attributes of the world are being referred to on the inside. Um, and the kind of amazing thing is that even though this thing has been trained without natural language data at all, you can find structure in this vector space of messages that looks a lot like kind of familiar compositional structures that we have in natural language.
1: Uh, perfect. Thank you very much for the uh, for the intro- introducing this paper. Uh, looking forward to read it, and uh, thank you again for for joining us for this recording.
2: Yeah. Thanks a lot.